trauma. We hear the word a lot, but what is it really like? What is the internal experience of trauma? Well, let's hear some descriptions from Justin Ordonez. Outside, the sun shines. Inside, there's only darkness. The blackness is hard to describe as it's more than symptoms. It's a nothing that becomes everything there is. And what one sees is only a fraction of the trauma inflicted. From Essie Edugen. My current life, I realized, was constructed around an absence. For all its richness, I still felt as if the floors might give way, as if its core were only a covering of leaves and I would slip through, falling endlessly, never to get my footing. And from Jody Sky Rogers. I wish I'd fallen softly, light and graceful like a feather, drifting slowly to the earth on a warm and dreamy summer's day. I wish that I'd landed softly too, but there's nothing soft or graceful about that devastating moment when the worst has come to pass. The unavoidable truth is that it is hard, cold, and brutal. All that you know to be true and good in life shatters in an instant. You feel like a delicate pottery bowl violently tossed from your place of rest, watching yourself crash and scatter across the hostile dark earth. The sound is deafening. Time stops. Inside, the quiet ache of shock and heartbreak slowly makes its grip known. They cut deep, these jagged edges of broken sherds. You gasp for air hungrily, yet somehow forget how to breathe. Not only are we born into a fallen world, but we are born into a traumatized world. And not only do we share in the falling human condition, but we share in a traumatized human condition. This quote from Kenny Weiss, he said, quote, no matter what kind of childhood we've had, nobody escapes trauma while growing up. The fall goes way back. It goes, it goes back before the world was even created to the fall of Lucifer, the light bearer, the morning star, Lucifer and his angels. And then that fallenness entered our world through original sin, the sin of Adam and Eve. And these are the original traumas, the fall of the angels, and then the fall of humankind with original sin. You and I, though, we are together in the adventure of this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics, and we are journeying together in this fallen human condition, in this fallen world, and I am thankful to be with you. I am Dr. Peter Malinowski, clinical psychologist, passionate Catholic, and together, you and I bring the best of psychology and human formation together. We harmonize it 
with the perennial truths of the Catholic faith. This podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics, is part of our broader outreach, Souls and Hearts, which brings the best of psychology grounded in a Catholic worldview to you and the rest of the world through our website, soulsandhearts.com. Trauma. We are just beginning a whole series of episodes on trauma. Many, many listeners have been asking for this. So many requests for me to address trauma head on. And it's such a tough topic and such an important topic. And since we take on the tough and important topics that matter to you, we're bringing it to you. We're bringing it to you now. So today, we're going to get an overview of the best of the secular understandings of trauma. So much has changed since I entered my doctoral program in psychology way back in 1993. Back then, there was really one seminal text on trauma. That was Judith Herman's Trauma and Recovery. Now, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been an upsurge of new, fresh, and much better ways of understanding trauma than what we had before. So today, we're going to discuss first the impact of trauma, then we're going to define terms. Those of you that are longtime listeners know how important it is that we define our terms. We're going to define what trauma is. We're going to define what an attachment injury is. We're going to define what a relational hurt is. And we're going to define what an adverse experience is. And then we're going to talk about different categories of trauma, different ways of understanding trauma. And we're going to recognize what trauma is from common reactions, signs, and symptoms. I'm going to give you the commonly accepted ways of, of recognizing what trauma is. We're going to discuss commonly accepted effects of trauma. How does it impact us? We're also going to discuss the traumatic effects of what didn't happen, right? What was missing from one's experience. And then we're going to have an experiential exercise to help you identify areas within your internal experience that are impacted in some way by trauma. The impact of trauma. Let's talk about that. This I'm taking from a fact sheet from the North Dakota Department of Human Services, but it's out there in the internet in a lot of different forms. People who have experienced trauma, who identify themselves as having experienced trauma, are 15 times more likely to attempt suicide than those that have not. They're four times more likely to, likely to abuse alcohol, four times more likely to develop a sexually transmitted disease, four times more likely to inject drugs, three times more likely to use an antidepressant medication, three times more likely to have work absences, and three times more likely to experience clinical levels of depression. They're also three times as likely to have serious problems on the job, 2.5 times more likely to smoke, twice as likely to develop chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, and two times more likely to have serious financial problems. There's a, a really famous TED Med talk uh, entitled How Childhood Trauma Affects Health Across the Lifetime by pediatrician Nadine Burke Harris. It was originally aired back in September of 2014. It's got 4.5 million views. goes into all the negative health effects. We're talking medical conditions that are, that are associated with adverse childhood experiences. And we're going to talk about those in a little bit more. But even when you control for different variables, even if you 
take out lifestyle choices like smoking and so forth, you still see massive impacts on individuals' health that are associated with childhood trauma. All right, well, let's start talking about these, the definitions of trauma. There's a lot of confusion and a lot of conceptual sloppiness when it comes to actually pinning down what trauma is. If you go back to John Breer and Scott back in the Principles of Trauma Therapy book in 2006, people use the term trauma in three particular ways. First, to identify a traumatic experience or an event. The second is to describe the resulting injury or stress. And the third is to discuss the longer term impact and consequences of those events. So you get this slippage in terms of how we actually understand it. Let's go to the American Psychological Association. On their website, they define trauma as, quote, an emotional response to a terrible event like an accident, rape, or natural disaster. Immediately after the event, shock and denial are typical. Longer-term reactions include unpredictable emotions, flashbacks, strained relationships, and even physical symptoms like headaches or nausea, end quote. Okay, so there's a lot of problems, I think, in this definition because first, they emphasize that trauma is an emotional response. But as we'll see, it's much more than merely an emotional response. It's a response that covers the entire gamut of a person's experience. So to limit it just to an emotional response, I think, is problematic. The second thing is is that this definition misses the central and defining element of trauma and that the experience is overwhelming. The experience overwhelms the person at the time of the trauma. Now, one good thing about this definition is is that it does understand trauma as the response, not as the event, but as the response. On the Integrated Listening Systems website, trauma is defined as the response to a deeply distressing or disturbing event that overwhelms an individual's ability to cope, causing feelings of helplessness, diminishes their sense of self, and their ability to feel a full range of emotions and experiences. So this is a better definition, right? It, it really captures that there's this overwhelming aspect to trauma that compromises the person's capacity to function in a variety of different arenas. I thought about going into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual version five or edition five, definitions of post-traumatic stress disorder and acute stress and acute stress disorder, but I'm not gonna address those here because basically it's not worth the time. Those diagnostic criteria have been highly criticized by so many professionals for for being very limited, being way behind the curve, and not recognizing the nuances and categories of trauma responses. It's just not worth our time to address them. You can look them up if you want. They're readily available on the internet. So trauma, we're going to continue to remember that that's the, the response the internal response to a deeply distressing or disturbing event that overwhelms the person's capacity to function. That's the essential aspect of it. Now, let's talk about an attachment injury. Now, Dr. Sue Johnson defines an attachment injury as, quote, a feeling of betrayal or abandonment during a critical time of need, end quote. So this is really 
a relational definition. It has to do with attachment, the capacity to connect in a deep bonding way with another person. The Uniformed, the Uniformed Services University Human Performance Resource Sheet says that an attachment injury is an emotional wound to an intimate, interdependent relationship. It usually happens after a breach of trust, particularly in a time of need or in a moment of loss or transition. Once an attachment injury occurs, it can leave one or both partners feeling betrayed or abandoned. So that's a little broader definition. I like that definition a little better because it does capture this interdependent relationship, the issues around trust, you know, and it's not just in a time of need, but it could be a moment of loss or transition that this happens in. Uh, examples of the causes of attachment injuries. Um, this list is from John Gottman's book, What Makes Love Last, How to Build Trust and Avoid Betrayal. So there can be, number one, conditional commitment. This is where you or your partner are on the lookout for someone more attractive, more desirable, someone who may, might be a better soulmate, right? So the, the commitment isn't strong. The second could be a non-sexual affair. These Sometimes these are called emotional affairs where your partner is in an emotional connection with somebody else. Third, lying or deception or dishonesty can include so-called little white lies. The fourth is forming some kind of coalition against the other person, you know, maybe pulling the kids, maybe pulling the kid maybe pulling the kids in, trying to isolate your partner, and so the relationship is no longer collaborative. Fifth, absenteeism or coldness in the relationship. This is where the, the partners are no longer prioritizing each other in a time of need. Instead, there's distancing, and this can have a really devastating impact. And this could be failing to support each other during highly stressful events, or maybe, uh, you know, consistently missing opportunities to turn towards each other during the ordinary demands of day-to-day -day life. Number six, the withdrawal of sexual interest. You know, sometimes one spouse is okay with this and the other is not. Um, it can indicate that there's a lack of, of valuing of the other person. It depends on how the other spouse makes sense of that. Sometimes the couples are okay, especially as the relationship ages and there's less there's less sexual uh, connection or less sexual interest, and sometimes they're okay with that. In that case, it wouldn't be an attachment injury necessarily, but often that's really painful for one and sometimes both of the partners. Seventh, disrespect. John Gottman says, quote, a loving relationship is not about one person having the upper hand, it's about holding hands, end quote. You know, this, this is about respecting each other and there being a mutuality, there being a way of being with your partner, right? In a respectful, honoring way, respecting their dignity. And, you know, compromises to this include refusing to acknowledge that you've hurt your spouse or your partner. It can be a lack of willingness to apologize and admit wrongdoing. So that's the disrespect. Eighth, is unfairness. This could be a lack of balance when it comes to household tasks, could be a lack of collaboration, 
or a lack of cooperation around finances or the disposable income and how that gets used. Number nine, selfishness. This is when one partner lives in a mostly self-focused way and behaviors are driven by self-absorption. This can be very wearing on relationships. And the last one, number 10, breaking promises. This is where repeated disappointments around broken promises, unfulfilled promises, that's when it results in disillusionment. It can undercut trust between the spouses. And the one that's breaking the promises can be communicating to the other one, you don't matter that much to me. Lena Isaacson added a couple of others that I think are worth mentioning. The first is uh, abuse. Various kinds of abuse could be emotional abuse, gaslighting, exercising power and control, economic abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, all different kinds of abuse. And the second is the refusal to forgive or to accept the partner, you know, refusing to let go of resentments. And this can include excessive criticism, moving out of the home and refusing to return after your partner has done significant personal and relational growth work, and they've demonstrated change, and they're making a good faith effort, and that's just not being uh, honored or recognized. Okay, so that's attachment injuries, right? These feelings of betrayal or abandonment. Attachment injuries are a particular type of trauma response which involves the important attachment relationships. Right, so there's another type here that I want to mention which are relational hurts. Relational hurts. And I'm drawing from some of Laura Epting's work at goodtherapy.org. She has an article called Relational Hurt or Attachment Injury, How to Tell the Difference. And relational hurts are painful experiences in an attachment relationship that are inflicted from one person to another, but that don't lead to the rupture of the relationship. There's still a sense of love, still a sense of connection between the spouses or between the partners. There's still trust. There's still mutuality. There's a capacity for the couple to move forward. And when you ask one of the spouses or one of the partners, does the other one still love you and care for you? You're going to get the answer yes, right? So examples of these relational hurts can be forgotten anniversaries, could be insults, could be intense arguments, could be a variety of different things that don't compromise the basic bond of trust between the two people, but are still painful, but are still the kinds of things that, that lead us to suffer, right? So those are the relational hurts. So continuing with our section on definitions, I want to talk about adverse experiences. Now, this is where we're starting to talk about the actual events, right? This is what we are calling the actual events. They're called adverse experiences. And when they happen in childhood, they're called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, right? So adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, those cover all kinds of difficult situations that children either directly face or that they witness while they're growing up. And this happens before those children have developed the kinds of coping skills that are more available to adults, So adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, they disrupt the normal course of development of the child and that emotional injury, that trauma can last long into adulthood. And these can include things like the loss of a parent. They can include things like neglect, emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, divorce, 
These are the most common types of adverse childhood experiences. What kind of prevalence are we seeing for adverse childhood experiences in the last 30 years? There's been a lot more research on this. And the Mental Health Connection of Tarrant County put out a fact sheet with studies that document each one of these points. I'm not going to list all the studies or we'd wind up mired up in some footnotes here, but four out of every 10 children in America say they experienced a physical assault during the past year with one in 10 receiving an assault-related injury. 2% of all children experienced a sexual assault or sexual abuse during the past year with the rate at nearly 11% for girls aged 14 to 17. 11% of girls aged 14 to 17 report experiencing a sexual assault or sexual abuse. Nearly 14% of children repeatedly experienced maltreatment by a caregiver, including nearly 4% who experienced physical abuse. One in four children was the victim of robbery, robbery, vandalism, or theft during the previous year. More than 13% of children reported being physically bullied, while more than one in three said they've been emotionally bullied. So this idea of physical bullying, emotional bullying. One in five children witnessed violence in their family or in the neighborhood during the previous year. All right, in one year, about 39% of children, these are adolescents between the ages of 12 and 17, reported witnessing violence. 17% reported being a victim of a physical assault, and 8% reported being the victim of sexual assault. So there's more and more statistics here, right? More than 10% of youth age 17 and younger reported five or more exposures to violence. Nearly 25% of youth age 17 and younger were victims of robbery or witnessed a violent act. So there's just a lot of bad things that happen in our fallen world. Adverse childhood experiences. Right. So when we look at the, the way that some of the professionals really identify them, the ACEs study, this is the big Kaiser Permanente study, done in the early 90s, identified these 10. Physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, physical neglect, emotional neglect, a family member who is depressed or diagnosed with other mental illness, a family member who is addicted to alcohol or another substance, a family member who is in prison, witnessing a mother being abused, and losing a parent to separation, divorce, or death. 61% of adults across 25 states experienced at least one of these 10 ACEs, these adverse childhood experiences, and nearly one in six American adults experienced four or more. Now, this leads to all kinds of problems in adulthood, and we find increased rates of physical injuries in adulthood, right? Traumatic brain injuries, bone fractures, burns. We see mental health problems, increased depression, increased anxiety, increased suicide, increased PTSD. We find problems with maternal health, a lot higher rate of unintended pregnancies, complications in pregnancies, and miscarriages. We find higher levels of infectious disease, HIV, sexually transmitted diseases. We find greater Levels of cancer, diabetes, we find more alcohol and drug abuse, we find more sexual acting out, and we find that people that have experienced these ACEs, especially if they've experienced four or more, are winding up with a loss of opportunities, less education, lower levels of income, and more difficulties in their occupations. So the cost of these adverse experiences is high.
Let's start talking about different ways of categorizing trauma. We're laying this foundation here so that we can be able to talk about it with greater facility. So first, there is acute versus chronic versus complex trauma. Then there are natural causes versus human causes of trauma. Then there's the so-called big T trauma versus little t trauma. Then there's something called secondary trauma. It's also known as vicarious trauma. And then I'm also adding acknowledged versus unacknowledged trauma. So those are different categories we're going to get into now. So let's talk about acute versus chronic versus complex trauma. So there's a, a Psychology Today article that talked about acute trauma reflecting intense distress in the immediate aftermath of a one-time event. The reaction is of short duration and common examples include a car crash, physical or sexual assault, or the sudden death of a loved one. The, the important thing about acute trauma is that it's a one-time event. Usually the reaction is of short duration. Now we contrast that with chronic trauma, which can arise from harmful events that are repeated or they're prolonged. They go on over time, right? So when you have something like persistent bullying, persistent neglect or abuse, and that abuse could be emotional, physical, or sexual, domestic violence, and it goes on over time, then the response can be a chronic trauma response. Right. The third type in this category is complex trauma. And this is something that's become much more, that's received much more focus in the last 10 years or so. A complex trauma response arises from experiencing repeated or multiple traumatic events from which there is no possibility of escape. The sense of being trapped is the central feature of the experience of complex trauma. Like other types of trauma, it can undermine a sense of safety in the world and it can bring forth hypervigilance, constant monitoring of the environment, you know, for the possibility of threat. This can really be exhausting. But complex trauma has to do with repeated or multiple traumatic events and no escape. Right? So that's one kind of way of categorizing trauma. Another one is this big T trauma versus little T trauma, or capital T trauma versus small T trauma. And here, the word trauma is used to describe the adverse experience, so it's going back to the event. And big T trauma is a reaction to a deeply disturbing, life-threatening event or situation, right? That's the big T. The big trauma refers to something that everybody recognizes as being really extraordinary, right? Violent crime, natural disasters, being a victim of a terrorist attack or a sexual assault, being involved in combat or a plane accident or the death of a parent for a child. Stuff that people would say, yeah, that's really bad. And the contrast is with the little t trauma. So these are smaller, more personal distressing events that disrupt our functioning and compromise our capacity to cope. And these distressing events are not inherently life-threatening. They don't necessarily threaten to take us out of our body, harm us physically. All right? So examples of little t trauma are, include those things that everybody might not recognize as being really able to generate the intense kind of emotional reaction or a, or a feeling of overwhelm, but they still do. So this can be interpersonal conflict infidelity of a romantic partner, conflict with a boss, job change, a geographic relocation where you move to a different part of the country. It could be a romantic breakup. It could be the death of a pet or it could be legal trouble or financial difficulties, those kinds of things. 
One of the things that the little T traumas though have is that they have this cumulative effect, right? If you have several of these, they pile up, it can make for a very uncomfortable internal experience. Now, big T trauma or little T trauma, um, again, it originally had some support for that kind of categorization. There's still, it's still out there because the emphasis on the importance of less obvious adverse experiences. But the problem is, is that we're still describing the event as though the event somehow determines or measures the experience. And one of the things I really want to stress again at this point in our time together is that trauma is the response to the, to the event. It's the response. It's not the event itself, right? Because you can have people experiencing a very similar event with very different responses, some having a trauma response and others not. Imagine it, you know, I'm, I'm going to invite you to imagine a plane crash, right? Wh- where there might be 150 people on the plane experiencing roughly the same kind of, uh, the same kind of circumstances, the same event, but with wildly varying responses to that event. Some people are going to walk away from that plane crash and they're, they're not really going to be impacted all that much by it. They can kind of shake it off and they don't have their world shattered like we discussed in the, in the opening, right? Where the blackness comes in, there's a sense of void, meaninglessness, identity issues, all kinds of things coming in. We're going to talk about it in a little bit. Whereas other people may be really, really impacted. So remember that trauma has to do with the response rather than what the nature of the event was. Or another way of categorizing traumatic experiences is to look at natural versus human causes. So in this, I'm drawing from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. They had a they had a nice little fact sheet on this. I'm going to separate these for fun into the four elements, earth, water, air, and fire with, with these natural causes, earth being earthquakes, landslides, falling boulders, and meteorites. I don't know if meteorites actually should be included, but that's where I thought it should fit. Secondly, water, right? Floods, tsunamis, avalanches, blizzards, air. Tornadoes, cyclones, typhoons, hurricanes, dust storms, and fallen trees. Fire, volcanic eruptions, lightning strikes, wildfires. They also included some health ones, physical ailments or diseases, epidemics, and famines. Right, Assuming that these weren't caused by human beings. You know, really are natural causes. They can fit under that, on that, under that particular category. Within human-caused... Within human-caused trauma, we have a distinction between accidental acts and intentional acts. So accidental acts could include things like train derailment, a roofing fall, structural collapse, mountaineering accident, an aircraft crash, uh, car accidents due to malfunctions, a mine collapse, radiation leaks, the collapse of, of cranes, a gas explosion, electrocution, oil spills, maritime accidents, accidental gun shootings, and sports-related deaths, right? Those are accidental acts where there's not an intentionality behind them. Then there are the intentional acts, and this is arson, terrorism, sexual assault, and abuse, right? And actually, I'm going to invite you to, to, to go back to the this podcast, episodes 
40, 43, and 44 for a three-episode series on rape, incest, shame, and silence to kind of get into some of the sexual assault and abuse stuff. We covered some of that in episodes 40, 43, and 44. It was in our series on, that was in our series on shame. Intentional acts also include homicides, suicides, mob violence, rioting, physical abuse and neglect, stabbings, shootings, warfare, domestic violence, poisoning a water supply, human trafficking, school violence, torture, home invasions, bank robberies, genocide, medical or food tampering, harassment, street violence, bullying, that kind of stuff, intentional acts. And then within this, I would also talk about um, actions versus omissions, right? Sometimes it's not about what happens, but what doesn't happen, right? Especially when we're talking about neglect, right? There's often not a specific event that you can point to, but there is a lack of attunement, a lack of empathetic connection, a lack of safety, a lack of there being a sense of being seen, heard, known, and loved, right? So it's really a kind of slow starvation of the things that are really needed rather than being some uh, overt act, whether that's, uh, whether that's intentional or unintentional. All right, so another type of trauma is called secondary trauma. It's also called vicarious trauma. And a Psychology Today article described that secondary or vicarious trauma as arising from exposure to other people's suffering, right? It can strike those in professions that are called upon to respond to injury and mayhem, notably notably physicians, first responders, and law enforcement. And frankly, as an aside, I would include mental health professionals as well in this, right? Over time, such individuals are at risk for compassion fatigue, where they, whereby they avoid investing emotionally in other people in an attempt to protect themselves from experiencing distress. Okay, that's secondary trauma. So you you actually didn't experience it firsthand, but you experience it from being close to someone who experienced it. Finally, I'm going to talk about acknowledged versus unacknowledged trauma. So what do we mean there, right? I'm talking about the frame of reference. So many people try to define their trauma away, right? Things like this. Just because my dad was a raging unemployed alcoholic and mom was stressed out with her job and all the housework and we struggled financially and my parents fought all the time, that wasn't trauma. That was just normal. That was just how it was. I was never hit by my parents or nothing like that. Not like my classmate, Billy. Now, Billy, he suffered trauma. His dad used to hit him with a golf club and he came to school with bruises. That's trauma. Or the kids that were sexually abused. That never happened to me. I just had a rough childhood, but it wasn't trauma. I moved on. It's all in the past. And you can see that there's a way of really trying to minimize, avoid, and not connect with what the experience actually was. And again, there's a protective intentionality behind that kind of approach to our experience. Right? That minimization is an attempt to try to make sure that I'm not going to be overwhelmed by the intensity of my experience. All right, so those are different ways of categorizing trauma. Now we want to move on to recognizing trauma from the signs and symptoms. This is so so important. I'm going to, now I'm drawing from many secular sources here, but the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, 
their trauma-informed care in the behavioral health services publication, that was really helpful, especially chapter three. It's all about understanding the impact of trauma. Right? So we're going to talk about the emotional and psychological symptoms of trauma. We're going to talk about the cognitive symptoms of trauma. We're going to talk about the physical symptoms of trauma. We're going to talk about the behavioral symptoms of trauma. And we're going to talk about the existential symptoms of trauma. All right, those five domains. Now, the other thing that this particular publication did is that it made a distinction between the immediate reactions and the delayed signs, right? Because those can be really different, especially from person to person. So we're going to talk about these five areas, the emotional and psychological, the cognitive, the physical, the behavioral, and the existential but we're also going to talk about the immediate, the immediate reactions and then delayed reactions, all right, when there's a trauma response. Okay, this is, we're going to spend a fair amount of time on, partly because I really want you to be able to understand your own experience. So I want you to be checking out whether you're experiencing these things, and it also may help you to be able to recognize the signs and symptoms in other people's potential trauma reactions, especially those that you love, those that you're close to. Right, so we're going to start with the emotional and psychological symptoms of trauma. And within that, we're going to start with the immediate one. So, so this is what happens right after the adverse event, right? The emotional overwhelm. Remember, that's, that's characteristic of trauma, that there's an emotional overwhelm that can lead to shock, denial, disbelief, feeling disconnected or numb or detached. We call that dissociation. We'll talk about that more in a bit. Anxiety, severe fear, even panic attacks, guilt, including survivor guilt. Why did I survive the bus crash when others didn't? Anger, rage, sadness, helplessness, wild mood swings. There could be exhilaration about surviving and then a deep sense of guilt or shame. Sometimes there's emotional constriction shutting down, going into a freeze response. Those are all immediate emotional and psychological symptoms of trauma. Let's talk about some of the delayed emotional signs. This is the stuff that comes in after, right? After all the initial intensity is passed. But what's, what's still going on inside the person? How are we recognizing that there might be a trauma response in the emotional or psychological arena? Well, we could see irritability, hostility, edginess, depression, mood swings, different kinds of anxiety, right? Phobias and generalized anxiety. One really common one is fears that the trauma is going to happen again. Grief, shame, a sense of being very vulnerable, very fragile, emotional detachment or disconnection in relationships, hopelessness, despair, the inability to enjoy anything. We call that anhedonia or the difficulty in experiencing positive emotions. Those are all delayed emotional signs or symptoms of trauma, right? Within that realm of emotional and psychological reactions. So that's the first one. Now we're gonna move on to the cognitive symptoms of trauma. These have to do in the area of thinking, of thought, right? Of information processing. So immediate cognitive reactions to trauma include disorientation, 
difficulty concentrating, ruminating, obsessing, having racing thoughts, having intrusive thoughts, right? Replaying that traumatic event over and over again, visualizations of the event could be time distortion, extreme alertness, right? This hypervigilance, always on the lookout for warnings of potential danger, a new sensitivity to loud noises, smells, or other things around you, memory problems, including being unable to remember the event, feelings of being out of control, feeling unreal, and what we call depersonalization. And that's when you're not yourself. You feel like you're watching someone else. You have these persistent or recurring experiences of feeling detached from yourself, as if you were an outside observer of your own mental processes or of your own body. You might feel like you were in a dream, right? An unreal feeling of yourself or your body. Maybe time seems to have slowed way down. That's depersonalization. And another dissociative symptom is derealization. This is where you have this ongoing recurrent experience of unreality, things you just do not seem like they are real in your surroundings. The world around you seems dreamlike or distant, like you've walked into some sort of Salvador Dali painting or something like that, right? It just doesn't seem real, like you've entered into the twilight zone or something like that. Really common cognitive reactions in the immediate aftermath of an adverse event. What about delayed cognitive signs? What do we see there, right? Again, I'm going to bring up dissociation again. And dissociation is this mental process of disconnecting from one's own thoughts, disconnecting from your feelings, disconnecting from your body, disconnecting from your memories, disconnecting from your sense of identity. The thing about this is that it's This disconnection and dissociation is automatic and it's completely out of your control. It's not something where you say, I think I'm just going to check out for a while. I mean, some people can voluntarily dissociate, but what we're talking about here in a trauma response is it's not voluntary. It's not experienced as something that you have control over. And there are five particular ways in which this can manifest itself. Amnesia, depersonalization, derealization, identity alteration, and identity confusion. So let's go through these, right? Amnesia. These are the gaps in memory, right? They, they can last from minutes to years, really common around adverse experiences where people just don't remember, right? They don't remember the time before the car crash. They don't remember the time after the car crash. Sometimes they don't remember the whole day that they found out that their spouse died, that kind of thing. Depersonalization, right? that's feeling really disconnected from your body and thoughts. We discussed that just a little while ago. Derealization, feeling very disconnected from the world around you, like the world is unreal, dreamlike, distant, distorted. Identity alteration, this is the sense of being markedly different than you were before, right? Just like that your whole sense of self is being questioned and that you've become somebody other than who you were. And then also identity confusion. This is, again, confusion about who you really are. And we're going to have a lot more to say about dissociation in future episodes. But for now, the main thing to remember about dissociation is that there is some kind of internal disconnect. All right. Another, th- another delayed cognitive sign can be what's called alexithymia, and that's the inability to recognize or describe your own emotions. I can't put my feelings into words. The experience of trauma can sometimes defy speech, our attempts to put it into words. This is from Bessel van der Kolk. 
who wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. It's really the best book on trauma that I've ever read in the secular world. And Bessel van der Kolk said this, people who suffer from alexithymia, remember alexithymia is that the inability to recognize or describe your own emotions. People who suffer from alexithymia tend to feel physically uncomfortable, but they cannot describe exactly what the problem is. As a result, they often have multiple vague and distressing physical complaints that doctors can't diagnose. In addition, they can't figure out for themselves what they're really feeling about any given situation or what makes them feel better or worse. This is the result of numbing, which keeps them from anticipating and responding to the ordinary demands of their bodies in quiet, mindful ways. If you are not aware of what your body needs, you can't take care of it. If you don't feel hunger, you can't nourish yourself. If you mistake anxiety for hunger, you may eat too much. And if you can't feel when you're satiated, you'll keep eating, right? One of the things about, we're going to talk about in just a little bit is how disconnected those who've experienced this intense trauma response can be from their bodies. But for now, to go back to the cognitive realm, intrusive memories that keep coming and coming, reactivation of previous traumatic events, right? So if there's a recent traumatic event, it can bring up all kinds of things that happened from previous traumatic events that have not been activated or triggered in recent days or years. Nightmares, confusion, distraction, being highly critical of the self, blaming the self. What could I have done better? How could I have gotten my way out of this? Like the self-recrimination and rumination about what one did or didn't do in the traumatic situation. Preoccupation with the event, it being the only thing I can think about and denial of the event. Some people you know, will have a delayed cognitive reaction of denying the event. And this is where Judith Herman in her book, Trauma and Recovery, which I mentioned, said, quote, the conflict between the will to deny horrible events and the will to proclaim them aloud is the central dialectic of psychological trauma. Will we speak what our experience was or are we going to try to bury it so that it doesn't overwhelm us? That's what Judith Herman says is the central dialectic of psychological trauma. Again, more cognitive effects, difficulty with decision-making, and then magical thinking that certain behaviors, including avoidance, will protect you against future harm. Also, there can be lots of suicidal ideation, thoughts of suicide, fantasies of suicide. So that's what's going on with the cognitive. We've covered the psychological and emotional reactions, both immediate and delayed. Now we've covered the cognitive symptoms of trauma, both immediate and delayed. Now we're going to move on to the physical reactions to trauma. And this is where Bessel van der Kolk in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, has this great quote. He says, quote, traumatized people chronically feel unsafe inside their bodies. The past is alive in the form of gnawing interior discomfort. Their bodies are constantly bombarded by visceral warning signs. And in an attempt to control these processes, they often become expert at ignoring their gut feelings and in numbing awareness of what is being played out inside. They learn to hide from themselves. End quote. That's why he named his book, The Body Keeps the Score. The body's going to keep track of all the unresolved traumatic aftermath, right? So let's talk about immediate physical reactions. Okay, so let's just assume that an adverse event has just occurred. We've got nausea, gastrointestinal distress, sweating, shivering, fainting, muscle tremors, 
uncontrollable shaking, racing heart, fast breathing, elevated blood pressure, physical agitation, extreme fatigue, exhaustion, exaggerated startle responses, headaches, ringing in the ears, immediate physical reactions. Delayed physical symptoms, so this is after some time has passed from the event, sleep disturbances, including insomnia, aches, pains, different ways of expressing psychological distress in the body, appetite changes, difficulty with digestion, persistent fatigue, elevated cortisol levels, hyperarousal, chronic muscle tension, and long-term health problems, particularly problems with the heart, liver, with the adrenal glands, and autoimmune problems, and also COPD. Those are the physical symptoms. Now, we're going to be spending a lot more time on the impact of trauma on the body because it's so not understood in our culture. So we're actually going to spend a whole episode on that. But for now, we're going to leave it there, physical symptoms. Let's go on to behavioral symptoms, immediate behavioral reactions. What do we see? Well, the consensus is that you'll see exaggerated startle responses. This is where people are really jumpy. You know, again, sensitive to noise, sensitive to unexpected stimuli in the environment, restlessness, argumentative behavior. You'll often find an increased use of alcohol, drugs, and tobacco, social withdrawal, relational apathy, and avoidant behaviors, right? That's stuff that can happen in the immediate aftermath of an adverse event in a trauma response. What about delayed behavioral symptoms? What are we seeing after some time has passed? You can see avoidance of activities or places that trigger memories of the event. You can see social relationship disturbances, decreased activity levels. Sometimes people get into high-risk behaviors, things that are not healthy, that are quite risky. You can see the increased use of alcohol and drugs. You can see impulse control problems. You can see social withdrawal, which can lead to isolation, right? Disruption of social relationships. And Judith Herman said in her book, quote, over time, as most people fail the survivor's exacting test of trustworthiness, she tends to withdraw from relationships. The isolation of the survivor thus persists even after she is free, end quote. So much trust issues come in here. And a lot of times, the, what, what passed muster for a trusting relationship in the past is not up to it anymore. The, the levels of demand for trust go way up sometimes in trauma survivors. So they have difficulty maintaining close relationships and there can be also sexual dysfunction. All stuff that happens at the behavioral level. And so finally, we have these existential systems. And I'm so glad that the SAMHSA, um, that the SAMHSA article included existential symptoms. This often gets neglected in discussions of trauma, right? What kinds of things are going on existentially, what kinds of things are going on spiritually. So immediate existential reactions to adverse events can include the intense use of prayer, the restoration of the faith in the goodness of others. So that's a positive thing, right? If you were rescued from a traumatic situation by law enforcement or by paramedic or something like that, firefighter, you might, you might, you might have this sort of real rush of restoration of faith in the goodness of others. But there can also be a loss of self-efficacy. There can be despair about humanity, especially if the event was intentional, right? That intentionality where somebody was engaged in something evil. This can lead to negative thoughts about yourself or negative thoughts about other people or about the world. 
There's an immediate disruption about assumptions about life, you know, the fairness of others, the safety of the world, the goodness of others, the predictability of our lives. All of that can be really, really challenged. Those are the immediate existential reactions. But let's talk about delayed existential reactions, right? So there can be real harm to one's sense of identity, feeling as though I'm permanently damaged by this adverse experience. It can be a lot of questioning, like why me? Why did this happen, right? There can be increased cynicism, disillusionment about the future, real cynicism about mankind, right? And we get this and, and, and Dr. Mark Golston, in his book, Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder for Dummies, captures it in this quote. He says, quote, unlike simple stress, trauma changes your view of life and yourself. It shatters your most basic assumptions about yourself and your world. Life is good. I'm safe. People are kind. I can trust others. The future is likely to be good. And replaces them with feelings like the world is dangerous. I can't win. I can't trust other people. There's no hope. That gets to radical shifts in the assumptions and beliefs that one has about the world. You can see increases in self-confidence. If I can survive this, I can survive anything. You can find decreases in self-confidence. You can find a loss of purpose or meaning. You can find renewed faith. You can find hopelessness. You can find people reevaluating and reestablishing their priorities. You can find people redefining the meaning and importance of life and reworking life's assumptions to accommodate the trauma. Right, so there we've gone through quite an extensive list that I've pulled from a lot of different sources about the different signs and symptoms, the emotional and psychological symptoms, the cognitive, the cognitive symptoms of trauma, the physical symptoms of trauma, the behavioral symptoms of trauma, and the existential symptoms of trauma. But now I want to get into its effects. We want to get below the surface level, right? What we've been talking about so far is generally readily observable in oneself or in others that are suffering from trauma, but it's only sort of a surface level perspective. I want to get into what are the real underlying effects of trauma that have a huge impact on the way that we function, right? So one thing I wanna really emphasize is that when you're experiencing a trauma response, you have gone into survival mode. The big concern inside is the necessity of coming out of this alive. We're talking about very primitive, very basic responses, a drive to survive. And this is from Lebo Grand, he says, quote, we don't learn things that help us to thrive when we are in survival mode, end quote. Many, many people live chronically in survival mode because of their experiences, their adverse experiences. They are in an ongoing chronic trauma response. So that first effect of trauma that I'm emphasizing is survival mode. The second thing that I see is this increasing fragmentation right? A decreasing internal integration. And that's what this podcast is all about. It's called Interior Integration for Catholics. We talked about how integration is the primary sign of mental and psychological health. But what happens is the overwhelming intensity of experiences, of these adverse experiences, which are what defines the trauma response, that 
leads us to fragments. We can experience, for example, overwhelming grief. We talked about that in episodes 81 to 83. What happens then is that we need these disconnects. We need to, we need to not know that if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Because A equals C is too threatening for us to comprehend or to come to grips with. Right? Let me give you a really obvious example of a little girl whose father is sexually abusive. That little girl, five years old, she can't come to the full implications of the reality of her situation without being overwhelmed. She needs to disconnect. If A equals B and B equals C, we still can't get to A equals C. We can't use that transitive property. We can't get there, right? So what happens is that we have to like sever different connections within us. We have to fragment because there's a benefit of being able to continue functioning at least in some way. That's what happens in a trauma response. We have this fragmentation. As part of that fragmentation, we may lose a sense of time too. Bessel van der Kolk says, quote, when something reminds traumatized people of the past, their right brain reacts as if, as if the traumatic event were happening in the present. But because the left brain is not working very well, they may not be aware that they are re-experiencing and reenacting the past. They are just furious, terrified, enraged, ashamed, or frozen, end quote. Right? That's what happens. That contributes to the fragmentation. Right? So we have the effects of trauma going into survival mode, increasing fragmentation. We also come across these real identity issues. Right? Real questions about, now that this has happened to me, who am I? And this is a quote that really illustrates that from Shiori Ito in Black Box. Shiori Ito says, I felt as though everything inside me had been obliterated. However much I tried, however much I wanted to go back to being who I was before, it was impossible. All that was left was an empty husk of my former self, end quote. That really captures the experience of so many people, especially those who have had complex trauma. They don't know who they are. And so that's the first aspect of identity issues. The second one that I want to talk about that I think is so central in the trauma response, especially when it becomes chronic, right? When, when the response is, goes on over months and years is this question of shame. Shame. Trauma generates and activates and exacerbates and perpetuates this deep sense of shame. And shame is so important that I spent 13 episodes discussing how central it is to so many psychological symptoms and so many psychological problems and so many relational problems and so many emotional problems and so many cognitive problems and so many problems. Right, go back to episodes 37 and 49. Those are absolutely fundamental episodes for so much of what I talk about. But trauma generates shame. And this is from John Bradshaw, who wrote a book called Healing the Shame That Binds You. John Bradshaw said that, quote, shame is internalized when one is abandoned. 
Abandonment is the precise term to describe how one loses one's authentic self and ceases to exist psychologically. Here we're getting back into those attachment injuries, right? Abandonment. Abandonment. And it doesn't have to be you know, so extreme, like somebody, like, like your parents left you in a dumpster or something like that when you were a baby, it can be not ever having been seen, heard, known, or understood very well by your parents because they were so preoccupied with the difficulties of their own lives. Trauma activates shame. So if there's pre-existing unresolved shame from previous traumatic experiences, that can all get reactivated, right? Then there can also be a deep sense of not being loved or not being lovable, which is often denied because that is the worst, right? To believe that you're not lovable. I mean, here we're into really dark territory, right? Not only that you're not loved, but that no one would ever love you. That's a huge, hard thing. And this is a quote from Alex Michaelides. He says, one of the hardest things to admit is that we weren't loved when we needed it most. It's a terrible feeling, the pain of not being loved. She was right. I had been groping for the right words to express that murky feeling of betrayal inside, that horrible hollow ache, and to hear Ruth say it, the pain of not being loved, I saw how it pervaded my entire consciousness and was at once the story of my past, my present, and my future. Shame. Episodes 37 to 49, I really encourage you, if you want to understand the trauma response, to go back and understand shame. How shame comes from trauma. Trauma generates, activates, exacerbates, and perpetuates shame. All right, so the effects of trauma, we talked about going into survival mode, we talked about increasing fragmentation, we talked about identity issues, and now I wanna talk about the decreased capacity for relationships, right? This happens in a variety of ways. First of all, one of the things that's so common in trauma responses that defines it is you go into protective mode decreased vulnerability, right? I don't want to be vulnerable within myself and I certainly don't want to be vulnerable to anybody else, right? Decreased vulnerability with the self, decreased vulnerability with others. We're out of touch with so much of ourselves. We talked about those disconnects and if they're extreme, we get into dissociation. We get into dissociation and there's also this deep lack of trust. Here's a quote from Devon Hall. He said, the words, I love you, used to be enough for me. They used to mean the world to me. And today, they don't mean shit. Oh, you love me? Really? Why? How? How did it start? Why? Give me reasons. Show me behaviors that prove you love me or get the beep out of my way. I am not interested in diamonds and platitudes. I want to know that I genuinely matter to you because I don't have time to waste on pretty lies that are ugly beneath the surface. That's from Devin Hall. One of the great tragedies of trauma responses is how they shatter trust in relationships. And as we'll talk about in a little while, how they impact us spiritually, especially our capacity to trust in a loving God, 
All right. So the effects of trauma, we talked about survival mode. We talked about increased fragmentation, identity issues, the decreased capacity for relationships, especially trust. And now we're going to talk about desperation. A trauma response can, can lead one to just feel absolutely desperate. Right. This can lead to suicidal impulses. We did a whole series, five-episode series on suicide, episode 76 to, to 80 of this podcast, all about suicide. And if you look at suicide, you always see trauma. You always see trauma behind it, right? Or at least almost always. So desperation. And then the spiritual effects of trauma. I'm just going to touch on them very lightly today. We'll get into this in far more depth in future episodes of this series on trauma. God image issues about how people start seeing God in different parts of them. You know, this is episodes 23 to 29 of this podcast. I spent a lot of time getting into God image episodes, self-image. Some of these God image episodes can be conscious, but so many are unconscious. The problem of evil comes up. So many spiritual effects. Not dwelling on it so much now because the secular press doesn't have that much to say about it, but we're going to get into it in a lot more detail because it's so important. All right, now I want to talk about also what didn't happen, right? So many times we focus on trauma, we focus on a readily identifiable event because that's what's obvious, right? Or even if it's a so-called little t trauma, we can appreciate that a job loss or, you know, that there might be, um, you know, the, a pet dying or something like that could be really distressing to people. I want to talk about what didn't happen, right? And I want to talk about the five conditions for secure attachment by Daniel Brown and David Elliott. I bring these up a lot. This is part of that spiral learning. So much depends on whether these five conditions for secure attachment can be reestablished after the adverse event or after the adverse experience. One, can we feel safe and protected afterward? Can we have that sense? Can we feel seen, heard, known, and understood? Can someone else help us make sense of the adverse experience? Can they enter into our phenomenological worlds and appreciate something of it? Right, Danielle Burnock has this quote, trauma is personal. It does not disappear if it's not validated. When it is ignored or invalidated, the silent screams continue internally heard only by the one held captive. When someone else enters the pain and hears the screaming, healing can begin. Now, I would also argue that we need to hear ourselves. We need to hear our own parts that are in so much distress. Right? It's not just about having somebody else hear it, but we need to hear it. Sometimes other people can sense it. Sometimes other people can see it. But if we refuse to sense it, if we refuse to see it, that's, there's, that, the care of another person is not going to be enough. Right? Natasha Trethaway, in her book Memorial Drive, A Daughter's Memoir, said, quote, To survive trauma, one must be able to tell a story about it. End quote. The third element here is feeling comforted, soothed, calmed, and reassured. And this is something that's so difficult for so many people who have gone through trauma and who are struggling with the aftermath. Because again, it's hard to connect. It's hard to feel safe. It's hard to trust enough to allow enough vulnerability 
to feel comforted, soothed, calmed, and reassured, but it is absolutely essential. Here's another quote from Bessel van der Kolk in his book, The Body Keeps the Score. Quote, feeling listened to and understood changes our physiology. Being able to articulate a complex feeling and having our feelings recognized lights up our limbic brain and creates an aha moment. In contrast, being met by silence and incomprehension kills the spirit, end quote. Trauma survivors need to feel comforted, soothed, calmed, and reassured. They also need to feel cherished, treasured, loved, and delighted in. That's the fourth primary condition of secure attachment. And to feel that someone else has his or her best interests in mind. All right, so that's what didn't happen, right? And I'm really, really focused when I work clinically on what didn't happen, what kinds of things didn't happen, because the way that one feels unlovable is often because one wasn't loved by the ones that were really most important to love the person. Okay, so one important point I want to make is that you don't have to have all these signs or all these symptoms or all these effects for there to be trauma. Trauma is going to be manifested in different ways in different people. That trauma response might be more emotional in one person and more cognitive in another person. It might be much more body-based in a third person. It might be much more existential in another person. And so the different profiles of how these symptoms and reactions manifest themselves in trauma, there can be wide variations. And you don't have to have all of them in order to be experiencing a significant trauma reaction. Just wanted to make sure that I said that. And so now we're going to be moving on to the experiential exercise. And in this, I want to again emphasize that this is not therapy. This is more of an exercise around self-exploration. And I'm going to encourage you to do this at a time and in a place that's good, that allows for reflection, that's quiet. I'm going to invite you to have a pencil or a pen and some paper, some way to record things. could be on your phone if you want to do an audio recording of your experience. It's all okay. We want to make sure that we do things safely, so I'm going to invite you to keep looking at your window of tolerance, right? That you're not becoming hyper-aroused, becoming more into a fight or flight response where you're really revving up or dropping into a hypo arousal, which is a freeze response where you're shutting down or going numb or disconnecting. We don't really want any of that, right? That's not actually very helpful when we're doing this kind of exercise. You can stop at any time. And if this doesn't suit you, don't do it, right? Just take what's helpful to you. You don't want to do this while you're driving. You don't want to listen to this while you're driving. You can stop the recording, like I said, until you're in a good place for it. And we're going to ask that no part of you overwhelm you with the intensity of its distress. We're not going to open up any traumatic place. Instead, in in this exercise, we're focused on delineating where those places are within you That might be these no-go zones. We're not going to go into them, but we're just going to start to to understand what places within you might need some attention. So we're going to really slow it down now. 
And if it seems okay, if there's no uh, contraindications, just going to invite you to notice what's going on inside you right now. Can you be curious about your own experience? Can you have a big open heart toward what is going on inside of you? Can you accept what you find there? That doesn't mean that you have to endorse everything. It doesn't mean that you have to support everything. But can you accept what you find inside you as long as it's not overwhelming? Are, are you sensing that in this moment, you're receptive to new ways of understanding yourself, to new things that you might discover as we gently and calmly and kindly and safely go inside. Does that all seem okay? And if not, then I'm going to encourage you to honor that. There's something that seems unsafe. There's something that seems like it's not okay. I'm going to invite you to honor that and to not go forward with this. But if there aren't any contraindications, if it does seem okay, I'm just going to invite you to notice what's happening in your body right now. We're just going to get a sense of the space you're in right now. What's happening with your body? Just noticing what's going on in different parts of your body. And where are you emotionally right now? What are you experiencing in terms of your feelings? What emotions are up right now? Just accepting what's there. Any visual images Any memories? Any inner voices that just seem to be saying something to you about you? Any thoughts or beliefs or assumptions coming up right now, attitudes? If it's helpful, you can note them down. any impulses or desires or fantasies. And again, that doesn't mean that we embrace them or we run with them, we play them out or whatever. They might not be appropriate 
for enacting in one way or another, but just to note what they are, just to be able to identify what they are. Impulses, desires, fantasies. Any concerns about this so far? Is it okay? If not, you know, I encourage you to discontinue. May not be the time. But if it is okay, we'll move on to the next part. And that's a list of 30 words. I'm going to offer you 30 words, one at a time. And I'm just going to invite you to notice how you respond to each of these words. Body sensations especially, but also emotions, visual images, memories, inner voices, thoughts, beliefs, assumptions, impulses, desires, fantasies, anything that changes inside as you hear these 30 words one at a time. And you might write down any words that seem to bring up something for you and your reaction to them. We're not trying to expose any areas of trauma. We're not trying to explore any areas of trauma. But if your parts are willing, we want to understand more about your internal world and your inner experience, right? We're looking for what we call trailheads that you might explore at some point in the future if it's okay, if it's safe enough, if it's quiet enough, and if there's agreement inside that it's a good thing to pursue, right? So... So with that, we'll just start this list. I'm just going to invite you to notice if there's any reactivity to any of these. School. Love. Body. Being seen or heard. Playground. Loneliness. Arguing. Sickness. Alcohol or drugs. Fear. 
safety. Chaos. Sex. Escape. Mom. Okay, we are halfway through the list. We've covered the first 15. Just want you to just check in. We take a little break here and just notice how you're doing. Just invite you to reconnect. It's part of that integration we work with here. Just noticing where you're at, reconnecting with your baseline. can catch up on any notes that you might want to make. And in just a little bit, we'll continue with the other half of the list. Here we go. Help. Shame. Protection. Pain. Distress. Trust. Dad. Wound. Abandonment. Abuse.
sadness. Nothing. Guilt. Anger. Survival. And I'm just also now going to invite you to write down any other words or images or thoughts or assumptions or beliefs or anything else that was going on inside you that might be markers or ways to identify territory for you to explore in some way that's good for you at some point in the future. It's an opportunity now to just take down some notes about what this was like. Some aspects of this that you might want to remember. Some things that you might want to keep with you from this experience that we've had together. And then a lot of gratitude for the openness inside, for the willingness to be able to be shown things that maybe you didn't know before. Gratitude for the access, for the space to be able to explore. And then anything else that you might want to just make a note of. You know, this whole episode of Interior Integration for Catholics was focused on bringing you the conventional secular understandings of trauma. There are two areas in the secular conceptualizations of trauma that really warrant a much deeper exploration. The first is our physiological response, our bodily responses to trauma. We're going to get into that in our next episode, episode 89. This isn't just about memories. This is also about our bodies. It's not just about psychology. It's also about physiology, what happens in our bodies, because trauma involves the whole person, body, mind, soul, every part of the person. And Bessel van der Kolk says, trauma victims cannot recover until they become familiar with and befriend the sensations in their bodies. Being frightened means that you live in a body that is always on guard. 
Angry people live in angry bodies. The bodies of child abuse victims are tense and defensive until they find a way to relax and feel safe. In order to change, people need to become aware of their sensations and the way that their bodies interact with the world around them. Physical self-awareness is the first step in releasing the tyranny of the past. In our culture, we are often very disconnected from our bodies. Our bodies are places where we often dump things that seem too threatening to allow into our conscious awareness. So much happens in our bodies with trauma, and so much of that is beyond our capacity to control by sheer willpower in the moment. Susan Pease Bannett says that, quote, PTSD is a whole body tragedy, an integral human event of enormous proportions with massive repercussions, end quote. In the next episode, we're going to talk about The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. We'll talk about polyvagal theory by Stephen Porges. Dana Acury, she says, quote, we cannot outrun our past trauma. We can't bury it and think that we will be fine. We cannot skip the essential stage of processing, accepting, and doing the hard yet necessary recovery work. There's a mind-body connection. Trauma can manifest itself into chronic physical pain, cancer, inflammation, autoimmune conditions, depression, anxiety, PTSD, complex PTSD, addictions, and ongoing medical conditions. We need to be able to connect with our bodies. Then, after we've done the body stuff, in the next episode, we'll talk about common treatment modalities. We'll talk about EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. We'll talk about other ways of treating trauma. And then we'll get into internal family systems approaches to trauma. As many of you know, that is my favorite way of working with trauma. And then we'll bring all this groundwork on trauma together to address the spiritual dimensions of trauma. This is such a neglected area. It's so important. How does trauma impact the spiritual life? You know, grace perfects nature, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us. We have to understand how we're doing on a human formation level in order to have that solid natural foundation for the spiritual life. So that's a little taste of where we'll be going in future episodes. I'm so excited to be on this journey with you. Now, you're a listener to this podcast, and in that sense, you are with me, and I'm also with you. And I want you to remember that you can call me on my cell any Tuesday or Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Those are my regular conversation hours with you, with all of my listeners. I've set that time aside for you, 317-567-9594. That's my cell phone number, 317-567-9594. You can also email me at crisisatsoulsandhearts.com. Now, time is running out. I've got an opportunity that's available to you until January 15th. 2022. The Resilient Catholics community at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. How did you respond to that experiential exercise? What did you learn? Was that interesting to you? Can you see the potential for doing more of that kind of work on a weekly basis, on a daily basis? 
if you really resonated with that experiential exercise, if you've really appreciated this podcast, especially the internal family systems approach to parts, to understanding oneself in terms of multiplicity and unity, if you're into that, I want to invite you to apply to join the Resilient Catholics community. The Resilient Catholics community is all about loving with your whole heart, with all of your being. It's about getting over the natural level issues that hold you back from tolerating being loved and from loving God and others in a deeper, richer, more intimate way. It's all about your human formation informed by internal family systems and grounded in our Catholic faith. So if you're really into this podcast, if these ways of, in, of conceptualizing the human person, of conceptualizing interior integration, of conceptualizing human formation, of conceptualizing resilience, if these are appealing to you, then the Resilient Catholics community, the RCC, may be for you. $99 registration fee gets you the initial measures kits. We'll generate a five-page report. It's all about your parts, about how your parts interact. It's going to be our, our speculations about that. You'll get a weekly premium interconnections podcast that's just for RCC community members. Lots of experiential exercises like the one you just did today, but going much, much further because it's all in an integrated course. That course meets for 44 weekly sessions over the course of a year. $99 a month is all that it costs. And in fact, if you can't pay that, we'll take you on, we'll get you financial aid, we'll make whatever needs to happen happen for you to be able financially to be able to do it. So check it out. Doing that IMK, Initial Measures Kit, having going through that process, having the time to go through it with me because I meet with each one of you that does it for 15 minutes. It's all part of a discernment process to see if the RCC is a good fit for you. So you're not obligated to stay in the RCC if you apply, if you go through that initial that initial application process with that. So I'm going to invite you to do that. Call me with questions, 317-567-9594. You can email me, like I said, at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. If you're interested, sign up, soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. That's where you can find the, um, the landing page with all the information and the registration links. So get that done by January 15th or we'll be waiting again until, uh, until the RCC reopens in June. And with that, I want to thank you for being here with me. I want you to know that I pray for you. I'm going to invite you, if you aren't already, to pray for me to pray for all of us at Souls and Hearts that we can bring you what you need. And we'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.